All right, good morning, church. We've been studying through the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible, you can open it up and turn to there. Each Sunday I've preached on this, I usually have a two-word kind of group of people. It's the name of the sermon today. It's the influencers. And I'll get to that in a second as we go through the passage. I wanted to begin by telling you a story about um, a guy named Zach. When I was serving as, at a church in Los Angeles, I um, had been there uh, working with the youth and kids ministry, and this guy Zach came into the ministry, good guy, uh, him and his wife uh, became good, good friends with my wife and I, we were serving in ministry together, and uh, I encouraged him to stretch himself, and um, he began to try to teach sometimes on the youth night to the, the kids that were there, and we grew in our relationship. Well, four or five years into this ministry, um, there grew, this started well, long before I came there and above me, but there was a, a bit, essentially a big battle that had been brewing in the church over control of the church. Um, and there came a point where Zach called me and we had a conversation on the phone and there was a group that, that was trying to take control and he, as we began to interact, he surprised me because I had invested in him a lot and there was some caution for him to trust me in what I was saying. And what happened was he went back and, and I learned that uh, there was a group also actively working to influence the people of the church away from the leaders of the church. And he kind of got caught in that. But see, that's, that's why I'm leading with this example, because there was a group within the church that was influencing people. But what shocked me was somebody who I had invested in had been swayed and was at least on the fence about what they thought. In that entire scenario that I'm describing to you, is right here in this text of Scripture we're going to study. Because Paul has written to the church of Galatia. And you remember early on in the chapter, he said, I am astonished that you are quickly abandoning basically what Paul had taught them. And he had invested in them. But as we work through the passage today, you're going to see Paul is going to talk about this group of influencers that were in that church. So let me read to you the text and then we're going to break it down and see what we can learn from it. Chapter 4, starting in verse 8, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to, you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Father, I just pray as we study this that you would teach us something. As Paul grappled with these influencers back at the time he wrote this, that we would learn from it and grow today in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've gone through this series, one of the things that I've said over and over again is that Paul's main point of writing Galatians is 
a warning not to adopt biblical legalism. Now, if you don't know what biblical legalism is, that would be you're going to church and there's a lot of rules that are being placed upon you that you need to follow. And if you don't, then it means that your worth before God is diminishing. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go through this. But let me show you the first point, because I'm going to talk about the gospel and pathways in life. This is what Paul drives at right at the beginning. And if you don't know what I mean by the word gospel, what I mean is the word gospel itself means good news. And when you hear that, what was, how it was used in context back in the day was, was saying, I've got this good news I need to tell you. I've got this gospel that I need to tell you. And within Christianity, the word refers to the fact that Jesus Christ came from heaven, lived a life that was acceptable to God, became a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for you to pay for the sins that we've committed and we can have new life. That's the good news, that there's hope in what Christ has done for us to have a future. Now, I'm going to say the gospel and pathways in life. And maybe one of the best ways to explain this to you is to go to a story that Jesus told us in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal. The prodigal son. You know this story? If you grew up in church, you probably heard this. There was a father and he had two sons. And one of the sons came to him and said, I know I'm going to get a, a big inheritance Evan, I don't want to wait for it. I want it right now. And so to make the story shorter for our time, the father gives him his inheritance. He gives him what he asked for. And he leaves his father and he travels away to where he wants to go, to another land, and he lives it up. He, he uses his inheritance to gain friendships, to gain affluence, to, to spend money on things, but he squanders it all. And he finds himself then without anything left, and he's hungry, he's looking for work, and he ends up uh, helping at like a farm where there's pigs, and he's throwing them food, and he's eating some of their food, and this thought comes to his head. He says, you know what? Even my, my father's servants eat better than I do. And so he decides to go back to his father because maybe he'll take him back just as a servant. Father, could I come back and just be a servant? Because that's better than where I am now. And so he goes back to his father, and as he's coming back to his father, Jesus tells the story, the father's, he's standing there, and he sees him way off in the distance, and he can tell it's him just by the way he walks. You know, sometimes we can tell our children just by the way they walk, and he runs to him, and the father accepts him and embraces him because he loves him, and he brings him back, and he's so happy that his prodigal son has returned, and he says, we're going to throw a big party to celebrate this. Well, there's another son, and the other son did the opposite. He said, I, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to follow the custom. I'm going to uphold the values of the estate of what my father wants. And when he sees his prodigal brother come back and, he, and, and the dad is celebrating it and throwing him a party, he gets envious and he gets jealous and he complains about this. And you see, both of these brothers represent two pathways in life. The first we refer to as, I think on the point here, the pathway of irreligion. Now, irreligion is to say, I don't want anything to do with religion. I'm going to go do it on my own. And that's what the, the son did, the prodigal son. said, I don't want anything to do with the father. I'm going to go out on my own. Just, I just want my father's blessing. I want his stuff. Give me what I can have for the father and let me go live my own life. I want my own rules, my own pathway. This is the, this is the pathway of irreligion. Now the other brother he chose, you don't put it up there yet, but yeah, you're getting ahead of me, but <laughs> the other brother chose what would be sim symbolic of the pathway of religion. I'm going to follow the rules, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and I should be looked at as more righteous than my prodigal brother. And he held himself up higher like that. But here's the catch. This is why Jesus told the story. Both of the brothers really wanted the same thing. They wanted their father's stuff. They wanted something from the father. And really, the most precious thing there was the relationship they had with the father. And that's what the two pathways are like. We're going to go out on our own, and we, we want to make our way in the world. I don't, I'm going to score in relationship with the father. But then over here, we have people who say, I'm going to go to 
what my father has set up, his ways, his values, his customs, his rules, I'm going to follow them. And they look at themselves as being certainly more righteous than the prodigal, but they think of themselves higher. And yet, what Paul is teaching is that both ways sever relationship with the Father. Both of them can lead you to hell. The person over here who's trusting in their works, in their value of being more moral, is just as lost as the person who has abandoned the Father. Both are lost because they don't put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, we see this. I've just said all that. Let me show you how Paul says it. Because in verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He uses the word formerly. He's talking about because they're part of the Galatian church. You know, before you were part of the Galatian church, formerly, basically, you were enslaved to things of the world. He's saying that was you. You were the pathway of irreligion. Okay? But then, before he gets to the pathway of religion, that's why they got ahead of me up there, in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, and so now he says there's a moment where we become part of God's family. We talked about this last week, where we uh, put our faith in the work of Christ, and we're brought into the family of God. And so that's the next point, which is uh, finding out you're known by the Father. And I want to make this observation to you. Look how Paul says it. He says, now that you have come to know God, and he says, oh, or rather to be known by God. You see, we often put the emphasis on ourselves. I accepted Christ. I came, I put the facts together, figured it out. I studied all the, the uh, apologetics. But, and now I know God. I know Jesus is God. I know, but the way Paul says this is, says you came to know God, or rather, God came, let me make sure I say it exactly how Paul does, right? Or rather, to be known by God. The emphasis goes back to God the Father. Now, here's a point I want to make on this, okay? Because I've studied different languages. When I studied Spanish, there were two different words for know, saber and conocer. And in the Greek, it's the same. In the Greek, there's two words, gnosko, there's two words, and like both Spanish and Greek, you use them in different situations or contexts. If you want to say, I know something that's factual, then there's a, a no. I know that the um, refund checks for our taxes have been mailed out. That's a factual knowing, a, fa a knowing of something, facts. But the other knowing you would use if it's relational. I know, I have known them since they were five years old. It's a knowing of a person relationally. And it's interesting, even in the Greek, if you study some of the verses where it uses these words knowledge, what the authors choose. And he's saying here, God knows you relationally. You go to Romans chapter 8, and he says, For whom he knew, he, what? Predestined to become conformed to the image of God. And, there, and you begin to look at this. So you're saying God has known us? Yes. The Bible puts an emphasis on God knowing us as sons and daughters, not us somehow walking through life and figuring it all out, and now I can stand before him and say, hey, I figured it out. Open the gates of heaven. We never draw the circle around us. It, the circle is, we're always to be directed back to God and for the work that he has done. Now, Paul's emphasis is this. There's two pathways, irreligion and religion, and in between, he's going to say, you've come to know God knows you, and then he goes on to say, which is the third point, so he says, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's talking about the pathway of religion. 
Because he says, basically, that in between is finding out you're known by the Father. The Father knows me as a child of God. Salvation. And then he goes to the last point, the pathway of religion. How can you go back to that? It's interesting because when you weren't saved, you rejected all of those rules anyways. You didn't observe those things. Now that you're saved, you're putting your hope in them. And this is the problem that Paul was dealing with. You have Christians who have come over here and now said, we're following these rules, why aren't you? And they're bringing into the salvation experience works. And he's saying, why are you going back to that? Why would you go back to that? It's slavery. Just like you can be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, now you're just trading it for being enslaved to works of righteousness, trying to follow a pathway of works, a pathway of religion, like that other son who said, I followed all the rules. I should be seen higher than that guy, my son or my brother, who's a prodigal. So this is important because he doesn't want us to adopt biblical legalism. Christians, Richard Lovelace in his book, Dynamics of a Spiritual Life, says Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. It sounds like that older son, you know, insecure, his position suddenly. But just, this is what you, what you need to see in it, is this insecurity. This, I'm going to go out into the world on the pathway of irreligion and make my way, and I'm trying to fill my life with value and meaning with achievements. But over here, the insecurity in the pathway of religion is, I need to follow all of the rules so that I feel secure in my position. And that's, a, I talk often about what triggers you. Is there ever insecurity? You're feeling like, oh, God's got to be really angry at me because of what I've done. But our position is secure in Christ. It's what he did on the cross, his work. And the danger that Paul doesn't want you to fall into is that you begin to think that by following rules, I need to add that in as an extra measure of security to make sure I'm right. He doesn't want you to do that. Now, um, again, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. And I think you see that in the two different pathways. I'm looking for something in life to bring me joy through my accomplishments. If something challenges that, knocks, if, if, if I'm feeling not happy, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm anxious, I don't have joy, then something, ha something has um, displaced God. Or it could be over here. If I'm not feeling worthy, then something's displacing God. And that's what Paul really wants to drive at. Now, after he kind of lays out these two pathways, we're going to move on and see that he's going to talk about ministry, gospel ministry, okay? The gospel and ministry to people. So he says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And the first thing to make note of, I put up here, is that ministry needs to be flexible. Look what Paul says here. There's this cross you, I became 
as you, and you became like me. In other words, when, to, when the gospel comes into a culture, it doesn't always cookie-cutter it in a way that's going to look exactly the same everywhere. Because the challenge is, if I'm a Christian, and I come over here and share the gospel with someone, and they embrace the gospel, now does everything about my upbringing and culture come over here, and they have to now be like that? This is one of the challenges of the West. When the West goes outward into the world, and they reach a culture, do we make them look just like the West? I, I, I talk about this often, that the gospel doesn't do that. It doesn't eradicate culture. It only conforms the aspects of that culture that work against the gospel. But it doesn't make everyone look exactly the same in terms of how we dress, what we eat, what days that we observe, because that's what he's going to get at later in this. You're observing these days. You're going back to this. The Jewish Christians came over here and they said, you've got to observe these days like us. But this is not what the gospel does. Legalism wants to convert people and then make them dress and act the same way as them. That's legalism. And through this series, I've, I've said it in different ways. I probably said it this way earlier in the series, that the essentials um, are there, but the non-essentials can't become forced because that creates legalism. So just as a way of illustration, I remember having a conversation with someone, two different church cultures, and they said to me, I actually asked the question because I heard this. He said, I hear you're not allowed to go to movies. And they said, that's correct. We can't go into that movie house. Well, why is that? You know, I'm just having a conversation. Well, because, you know, there are bad movies. And it's possible you could walk out. Because I said, well, there's also good movies. You know, you could choose the, the good movie, right? And well, but you could walk out of there. And uh, one of your brothers or sisters may see you coming out. And they don't know what movie you saw. Maybe you went and saw the bad movie. And so, you know, for the appearance of evil, you can't do those things. I said, oh. are you allowed to rent movies? Oh, yeah, we can, we can go rent a movie. You know, you can go get a DVD, which, you know, we can't today. There are no more DVD stores, hardly, right? But uh, he says, yeah, we could go. So this shows you this is a dated uh, illustration, right? But he says, you can go in and rent a movie. I said, well, you know, most of the mom and pop DVD stores, they have a pornography section. Isn't it the same? Like, if, at least if you're coming out of the movie house, they don't have that kind of movie there. If you can assume bad things about somebody coming out of the movie house, what about the DVD store? And we're just kind of interacting, right? And they were like, that is a good thought. I never thought about that. But see, that's what legalism does. Legalism says, this is the way I, 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 we, we practice here. And I come over, and now you have to conform to all these aspects. And that's why one of the things I often say is the gospel doesn't shape that. Be careful to try to force that in another culture. So, um, things that the gospel would shape in a culture. What are the views of sexuality in that culture? What are the views of marriage? Is it polygamistic? Well, then that needs to conform. Like, there are things that need to be tied back to what the gospel shapes that you would want to change in a culture. But be careful that you don't create legalism for the wrong reasons. But, what I am saying to you here, this is Paul's point, not to get off on a tangent too far, but gospel ministry has got to be flexible. The gospel has to be able to come into other cultures and bring the gospel without trying to make it essentially exactly the same as it is in their culture. So Paul says, you became like me and I became like you. And he's talking about how there was some flexibility between the differences and how they had a, an influence that wasn't negative. But then, because of this, the next point is, so ministry needs to be flexible, but ministry means sharing your life with others. Because he says to them, you became like me, I became like you. That means you have to be around each other in such a way that you have had some influence. You have opened yourself up, your life, exposed 
who you are at a little deeper level to those people that you're trying to bring the gospel to. And this is what missions is. Missions is leaving your culture and going into another culture and living with those people. And, you know, you can't have a higher example than Christ himself who left heaven and came down. He lived for like 30 years before he ever started his ministry officially, right? And sometimes missionaries have to do that. They got to go and live in a culture to understand it and how to communicate with it to then bring the gospel. You have to open yourself up living life with the ones that you want to reach. And he says to them, I entreat you, brothers, become as I am. Well, look, you can't say be like me if they are never around you to see what you're like. Be like me. The best way to convince someone of the gospel is to, for them to see it in your life, to see that you embrace the very thing you want them to and how it's changed you. And we had teenagers, and they bring their friends over. And some of my boys now, they have girls are interested. They come over. And that's like opening up, right? It's like I'm at my house. You know, I don't want you guys to be flies on my wall to see everything that goes on in my house, right? I mean, we don't want that, right? You can't see everything about us. So when people come over, we can, you know, act a certain way so they don't see everything about us, you know, what we're really like, right? Is this just me? Because nobody's shaking their head, you know. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, and I have to be conscious of that, you know, and, uh, uh, but I think it's such a wonderful thing. Like when my kids' friends come over, they see the dynamic of our family. Some of them, they come from very different families than ours. And to see what is, what does a family look like that the gospel has come in and changed? And part of that is we're not perfect, but there's grace, should be grace and forgiveness and love, we better have those things that's central to, to the gospel, right? But you have to open your life up. And he says, be as I am, uh, for I also have become as you are. And that speaks to that. You know, the young generation today, uh, like I said, the, the best apologetic or defense for the gospel is an embodied apologetic. It's not organizing uh, very well thought out arguments that are sequential, that lead you somewhere where you say, aha, see, because of this, 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 it's true. You got to accept it. The best apologetic is an embodied apologetic, that they see it in your life and that you've embraced the very thing you want them to embrace. And so as we open up our lives, uh, good ministry means sharing your life. It's flexible with others. Um, and then uh, I put here that gospel ministry then also finds opportunities and hardship. Because look what he says. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Wow. Did you see what he just said there? The context of their relationship originally was Paul having some type of ailment that they helped him with. That is where they really grew and they deepened the relationship. He says, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy for you, he says, right? It was a hardship for you. We don't know exactly what it is. What it, it doesn't say specifically. But this is what I want to say. Ministry knows that hardship opened doors for the gospel to people. When I was in sixth grade, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I can remember sitting in an off office of a doctor with my, my younger brother, who was a year younger than me. So he's fifth grade. I'm sixth grade. And I remember the doctor coming in, uh, telling us this. And I remember my brother just started bawling. And I hadn't fully grasped what it meant and its impact until he said, your mother probably only has a couple months to live. Wow, for a sixth grader. Now, my mother, God healed her. She's still alive today. So, but I tell you the story because one of the things that I remember is how many people came to us in that time of our life. Even family members who were not that close or 
who my, my mother maybe had, you know, they were Christian and, and that family member was not Christian and they didn't really want to mix with us because of that. They came because the fact that my mother was on her deathbed with cancer trumped everything else. We're going to come because we love you. You are family. And I remember my mom. You can hear her give testimony. To how those, it provided so many opportunities to talk about the gospel with family and friends. And they looked. You talk about opening up your life. How are you dealing with that? Are you mad at God? Are you, how do you struggle with that? And this is why Paul, you know, he opens up his life and they get to see it. Paul dealt with many, many trials and they got to see how he dealt with it. Last week I said, I always think about Paul in prison, you know, and how, how it says they were singing. So I'm doing the work of the Lord and because of that I end up in chains in prison. And I always had this picture, right? They're in the prison hanging like this and they're like, I got the joy, 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 joy down. And it's like, that just doesn't fit with my mind, Right? But the, the unbelieving world looks at how does God's children deal with these things. And it's an opportunity for the gospel. And Paul is teaching us that right here. I had a problem, an ailment, and it was a hardship on you, he says. But you treated me well. And i got to take this opportunity to say something. It's not in the text. Because there's something that exists, and it exists on this island called the prosperity gospel. And even in the last few weeks, I've had conversation with people who ask me questions about this. And the prosperity gospel goes like this. God doesn't want you to be sick, and he doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And you get that by being good. If you are struggling with an ailment, if you suddenly find yourself lacking money, then check your life because you may have some sin there and that's God's kind of spiritual karma. It's the way He works. That is not true. That is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. And I will say this, that the Bible does say that, that the Father does discipline His children. He does. There is a truth there. But it's always to draw them back You've got something that's displaced him, and he may work in a way to draw you back to him. Jonah said, I'm going the other way that my father wants. Well, he ended up in the belly of a large fish, okay? But I want to show you this verse from 2 Corinthians. Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, let me just pause. This is Paul talking, and Paul is saying, I was having, I mean, Paul, there was no one higher than him. He was at the top. Nobody taught like him. Nobody led the church like him. His apostolic leadership, the revelations he's talking about, and the struggle that Paul might have had was pride. And how he dealt with people, maybe he would have been overly harsh or prideful about, I'm Paul, this is the way it is. And look what he says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might leave me. So he recognized this hardship, thorn in the flesh. There was something physical that was hard for him. God allowed it because he wanted to keep him humble. But there was something else God wanted to do. But notice what he said. I asked him three times. Three times I went in prayer. Lord, could you take this away? Maybe you've been in that position. Lord, take this away. Take this hardship away. But look what he goes on to say. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow! Do you catch that, what he's saying? In other words, God gave him something that kind of brought him lower to keep him humble. But what he discovered was, when you are a little bit lower and God gives you a task, how do you fill that gap now? And he says, Christ comes in and the, and the Spirit fills that. 
And instead of trying to do something 100% in the flesh, now you're working with whatever qualities God has given me, and this percentage now, I'm going to trust in Christ. I'm going to trust in the Spirit. And you are more powerful partnering that way. It's like yesterday, or a couple days ago, when I was in the gym. Okay, a few months ago when I was in the gym. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I'm lifting, you know, there's like the bench press, and I'm like doing this, you know, and you keep adding plates, and you keep adding plates. It's getting harder, and it's getting harder, and it reaches a point where it's like you start to go up, and your arms are tired, and it's coming back down, you know, because you've just, it's, uh, you're spent, and then what do you do? You know, well, for me, I just go, wife! And see, if you know my wife, you know why I said that, right? If you don't know my wife, it's because she's really strong. And she comes over, and she grabs the bar, and she could do this, but she doesn't. She just pulls up slightly. She doesn't do it all the way for me. She just gives me some help so that they keep pushing, so they keep pushing. She helps me get all the way to the top so I can rack it then, and then it's over. But the more you do that, you're developing strength. It's too strong for you, but somebody came in, helped you get to the top, and by doing that, you actually got stronger. That's what hardships do as a Christian. They teach you to say, not wife, but they teach you to say, God, come into my life and help me get to the top here. And the more that happens, you become stronger. And you grow spiritually that way. Now, I point it out because I want you to see that is absolutely contrarian to the prosperity gospel. Do you see that? So, let me move on and say what I love there that he says he, he, he loves difficulties, trials. He gives a whole list of things, insults. God doesn't promise to bless us by removing suffering, but to bless us through the suffering. And, you know, Christians, you know, we live in a really fragile culture. You know, just the insults, just the, you know, don't say something, it might offend. And Paul's like, he even has the insults there. I, I rejoice in insults. I mean, who in here does that? Right? Who goes around? I hope somebody insults me today. You know, we don't do that. We live the opposite of that. In hardships, in difficulties, a thorn in the flesh, he rejoices because he knows how it's going to make him strong. Now, that's going to take me, this is where we got. Gospel ministry is flexible. Okay, there needs to be an openness, a transparency to our lives. But it finds opportunities in hardships. And God uses those hardships. Now, that's going to take me to, the, to my last point, and that is this. The gospel produces frenemies. Frenemies. If you don't know what that means, it's like if they're a friend, but they're an enemy. You know, it's like they're my friend, but man, I, we battle all the time. You know, there's an enemy side to them. They're always fighting with me, arguing with me, but then they're my friend. I know some of you are going, this sounds like marriage, you know. <laughs> but let me show you how Paul uh, unfolds this. He goes on to say this because he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So the first thing I have there, let me see my first point, is that Paul's ministry led to friendship and influence. So that context, that hardship where they came and ministered to him, they grew deep, and there was a friendship there, but also influence. Because I already said, you became like me. There's some influence going both ways, but definitely influence. And then I asked the question, how deep was it? And the answer is in verse 15 I just read, which was said, you, re you received me like I was an angel. And then he says, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Like that's how deep it went. They, they received him with that kind of, of value. That's how deep it was. Okay. And then I just asked the question, what happened then? Okay. And he goes on to say, well, by the way, I don't want to miss this part. He says, uh, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them me. There's two things there. He's saying there was a blessing in the relationship we had between us. 
there was a blessing that went back and forth. And you cared so much about me that you would have gouged out your eyes for me. Now you're like, really? He's being expressive. Not literally. It's like when I say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Not literally. It's an expression. And that's what he's saying there. It's euphematic. He's saying, you cared so much, you would have given up your eyes for me. And that's a way for him to really kind of get it to that top level. That's how deep it was. Okay, what happened? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And this is interesting because how do you go then to being such a deep, close friend that now he's using the word enemy? But there's something else he says there. Because he says, I became your enemy. Why? Because I told you the truth. And what he's saying there is, I haven't changed. The very truth that I gave you in the beginning is the same truth. That has not changed. I have not changed. Something else has changed. And the answer is going to be these influencers that have come in and added to Paul's message in a way that is drawing them off from the truth. So um, he says here, and this is why, what's my next point then? False teachers led to a loss in joy and a loss of freedom. So there was blessing before between him and Paul. That's, now they're enemies. There's some lost peace there, some lost joy, but mainly freedom. Because if you go back to 10 and 11, he says you're going back and trying to observe days and months and years. You're, you're being enslaved. Before you had freedom from that. Our practicing our faith is not dependent on those things, this Judaistic ways that comes out of the Old Testament, right? And now you're going back to that. So in essence, you're losing freedom. That's what is the result of these influencers. Boy, we live in a culture of influencers, don't we? I mean, when I was in seminary, <laughs> what, what is a social media influencer? It didn't even exist back then. And now we all know what that means, right? How much the world has changed. Influencers. Could you just, as you watch this, would you just, you know, click the bell? Could you just add me? Could you be a follower? Add me to your constantly bombarded with people who are trying to gather a bunch of followers behind them as kind of a, a way that, that elevates them. I've got a million followers. Wow, that person is, whew, <laughs> let's check out what they are all about. They got a lot of followers. That guy's got 10 I'm probably skipping him. See that? That's the way our world has been unfolding recently. And here, what we see is there's a group of influencers, and they're, what they've got behind them is the church of Galatia that they have influenced and swayed. So my next slide is just a warning. It's a warning about false teachers, okay? Number one, they're self-serving in their speech. This is where you can recognize them. Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. I want you to follow me. Why? So now I can say something about me. See that? It's really self-serving. The way that they interact is to get something that's really for themselves. That's the purpose of it. They're self-serving in their speech. And the reality is people like this need followers. Their identity is in that. Without the followers, their identity is lost. They're dependent upon that, okay? Which I'm going to come back to that in a second, but second thing I put up here is their purpose is wrong, okay? The reason that they're, they're interacting with you, trying to get you to follow them, the purpose is all wrong. Because he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, um, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Okay, so there are times where it is good. There's a way in which Paul makes a lot of Timothy. There's a good reason for that. He makes a lot of him not because he wants to say, I got a follower. He wants to make something of him so that you can see what discipleship is like. How Timothy as a young man has grown into a mature man. He makes much of him for a good purpose. And here's the center of it. If they're making much and Christ is at the center, that's a good reason. 
That's a good purpose. Paul cares about making much of Christ. The only reason he makes something of Timothy in other parts of the New Testament is because he's ultimately making much of Christ. That's why the third point that we have up there is they don't, they don't make much of Christ, but Paul does. Because he goes on to say, this is what we're going to finish with, um, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Now, they haven't made much of Christ, but you see right here, his whole thing is about Christian growth. Because look at his analogy, childbirth. It's like when we give birth to a child and all we invest in them and we watch them grow up into maturity and then a proud parent says, that's my son, right? And then it's like, um, Paul brought Timothy in, Christian baby, spiritually, grows into this leader of the church. And Paul's saying, that's my son, you know, spiritual child. And he's, that's the kind of love and interaction he has, and Christ is at the center of it. So he says this, for whom I am again in the anguish what is he anguishing about? He's anguishing about that they have been falling away. This is like a parent who's like, why is my kid doing this? And do you know what? Do you know how he deals with it is he has to confront it. He has to confront it. Like a parent would see something in their child and say, I need to, I need to correct that. I need to say something to them because it helps them grow. Without that, that child's in trouble, Right? They need parenting. They need to be brought up in righteousness. Not just, well, I hope, you know, by osmosis they can get it, right? You can't do it that way. And this is what is true about confronting. If you just care about the followers, then you may not confront well, if I say that, I may lose a bunch of followers. If I post that, I could lose a lot of followers. This is not Christianity. Christianity has to have the courage wrapped in love to be able to confront the things that should not be in the life of the person. One pastor on this wrote, the gospel frees us from the need for people's approval and adoration so that we can confront and anger the people we love, if that is what is best for them. And although it does not always work, this is the only kind of communication that really changes people. Boy, that's, that's probably one of the best notes of the morning. The only kind of communication that really changes people is to speak into their life like what Paul did to Peter earlier in this letter when he was talking about confronting him. He goes on to say, if you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger, you won't ever tell them the truth they need to hear. If, on the other hand, you tell a person the truth they need, but with harshness and not with the agony of a lover, they won't listen to it. So there is a balance. When we confront, it needs to be done with love, not out of anger. And that's why I'm going to circle back here to my, what does, kind of ministries does the gospel produce? Remember, there's, it needs to be flexible. It's sharing your life with others. It knows that hardships open doors. And look at the last two I added here. Ministry doesn't need dependent fans. You know, it's like, oh, I can't lose any of them. They've got to follow after me, right? No, it can risk losing the follower because you're going to tell them the truth, okay? And this happened to Jesus, you know, when you read the Gospels, there were times where it says, and many people stopped following him that day because what he said was hard. But Jesus always said it with love and grace. So that's why the last one is ministry is both loving and bold. It's both, it's both of those. And, you know, I'm going to tell you as a pastor, this is, this is a reality. Pastors bear like a burden to shepherd people and we have to look for these things and 
all the years I've pastored, I've met, have had many, many conversations like this. I need to talk to this person. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes they're very stubborn. One time, I had a four-hour conversation with a person where it started out. It's, I need to talk to you about this. But they were so um, adamant against it. And they tried to find every way to, to show that it wasn't what I was saying. Four hours. That's what... That, that, that's love, and, but also boldness to... Who wants to sit through four hours of that? Who? But it's because you care about God's church. You know what? Let me just finish with Zach. The guy started telling you about the youth helper. He was a civil engineer, helped me out. Remember I told you, and, and uh, I got him teaching uh, the youth. One of my best leaders... But then when the big fight came, you know, he was swayed by influencers in the church. Um, But do you know what he's doing today? He's a pastor. He figured that out. We had lots of conversation, but he figured that out. He landed on the right side. And today, he left being a civil engineer, and he actually planted a church in the L.A. area, him and his wife, and God's using them to reach people. That's like a testimony of God working through people in His church who are willing to do that ministry with love and sometimes a boldness to talk about the things that need to be talked about. Father, thank You for this letter that Paul wrote. Um, Thank You that we can learn from his life. We can see that he loves that Galatian church He wanted to change his tone, he said, but the tone he was using was necessary. They needed to hear. The influencers were enslaving them, going back to following rules, thinking it made them more worthy. It doesn't. Lord, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of influences in our culture, and we need to be a church that is loving and bold. We need to be a church that's flexible because the church is super diverse, so many cultures and so many socioeconomic factors. Help us to be flexible like Paul was and help us to open up our lives to have an embodied apologetic that gives a testimony that we really believe the very thing we want you to embrace. Let, it see it, let them see it in our lives. Help us, Lord, to... Have that courage, the discernment to see what's there and to be able to speak to it, to encourage and lift up, but also sometimes to have to rebuke for things that shouldn't be there. So, Lord, I just lift all this up to you and pray that you would grow that in our church, that we'd be a community like this. And I lift it up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we worship together as a church.